Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 95 this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 100 eventually. But I want to start by reading just a couple of psalms of worship and praise, and then we'll rest in Psalm 100 to start with. And as we get to Psalm 100, I'm going to ask us to do a responsive reading together. But if you would just follow along as I begin reading in Psalm 95. It says, Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as at the day of Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was disgusted with this generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger or they will not enter my rest. It's amazing how he starts off with this exhortation to praise and to worship God for all that he has done. He says, come let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. I'm afraid that at times we've kind of let our salvation just become humdrum. If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, as I said last week, we have something to be excited about. We have something to rejoice over. So he says, let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. And the idea behind verse 2, let us shout triumphantly to him. It's the idea of going forth in victory, in battle. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Why? For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. Why? And he goes on to just explain why, after why, after why, after why. He's done this, he's done that, he's done this, he's done that. And over and over, he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think John MacArthur said it best. He said, for many people, if they've been in church any amount of time, one of the easiest things to do is, we walk into a service, pastor says, turn to such and such, and we get a glance at, oh, I've heard a message on that before, and then we go into coast mode. Kind of endure the time until the pastor shuts up. So he's saying, don't do this. Come before, and he says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And you remember the story back in Exodus. We talked about that a couple years ago as we went through the book of Exodus. He says, don't harden your hearts. It says, Meribah, ungrateful, unthankful for all that God had done. For 40 years, he says, I was disgusted with them. Then go over to chapter 98, Psalm 98. It says, sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. The Lord has made his victory known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness through the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. Verse 4, once again, let the whole earth shout to the Lord, be jubilant. Shout for joy and sing. Sing to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the melodious song, with the trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout triumphantly in the presence of the Lord our King. 
Let the sea and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it, resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. One of the things I realized this week as I was studying for Psalm 100 is that in every every, uh, uh, ability to praise and worship the Lord, there is a responsibility that comes with it to walk in obedience and to not remember how things were. In Psalm 95 and Psalm 98, there is not only an exhortation to rejoice and to praise Him, but also do not do this. Don't do this along with that opportunity to praise. As we come into Psalm chapter 100, it's a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of thankfulness. And he says right away in verse 1, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. And the idea behind the whole earth shouting is as to the king who has just led us forth in victory. Um, I, have, I have to share a little bit of a story before we get into the main part of the message this morning. And as, uh, you know, as you know, I am a Viking fan, as all men should be. Um, and I dare say, as I said this morning... Last year, they had this streak going on, and right when I opened my mouth about the streak, that's when it went, uh, and it tanked. So I'm going to tread lightly here. So I'm not going to talk about how great the Vikings are, because I don't want to, you know, don't want to mess anything up here. But I will say I was rejoicing last week when, uh, you know, the Vikings beat the Detroit Lions. It seems like no matter how disgustingly poor the Detroit Lions do in a season, they always seem to beat the Vikings. It just stinks. That's just the way it is. Vikings beat the best teams and lose to the worst ones all the time. Um, and then they get nowhere. But I was rather excited, and you know, Mike Cosgrove sends me a text, way to go Vikings, and I just returned it with, Skull Vikings! And everyone's like, what is Skull Vikings? Well, just for those of you that may not know what it means to Skull Vikings, I thought I'd share with that because the idea behind going triumphantly and shouting triumphantly is the fact that we are going forward in victory in the battle with our king leading us. Back in the Middle Ages, rampaging bands of Vikings were roaming Europe and kicking the holy uh, junk out of people, as this guy says, uh, from France. And he says it really didn't matter. The bottom line is, for 500 years, they just went around rampaging anybody that they could rampage. Anyway, at the end of the battle, um, the boogeyman would check his closet before he went to bed to make sure there weren't any Vikings in it. You know, we hear the stories of make sure there are not no boogeymen under the bed. No, the boogeyman would check their closets to make sure that there are no Vikings under the bed. So anyway, at the end of the battle, Viking warriors would decapitate the king or leader of the tribe or army they had just vanquished, and that knight would drink from his skull, spelled skull, S-K-O-L-L, as a sign of respect for the fallen opponent. It was only then that Viking warriors believed could an opponent who had fought valiantly be allowed into the Valhalla. In the battle, Vikings would urge each other forward by yelling, Skull! to one another. And by doing so, they were telling each other to keep it up so they could drink from the skull. At the top of the lopped off skull looks roughly like, hey, wait for it, a bowl. 
So the idea behind skull was to keep urging each other on to victory. The idea here in Psalm 100, though it doesn't say Vikings in the Hebrew or Greek or anything like that, is to let everybody shout triumphantly over the fact that Jesus as our leader is marching us on to victory in this life. And the idea behind shouting is as shouting to the king in triumphant over the, over the battle that they have faced. So think about this. We get excited about a lot of stuff in this life, don't we? I'm just telling you, there are some neat things going on around us that I get excited about. Um, have nothing to do with the Bible. And maybe you have things like that as well. I get excited when I hear the Vikings are winning. I get excited when... Uh, you know, any treasure hunters besides Dave in here? I mean, there are a couple of us. If I were, like, starting all over as a little kid, I'd be a treasure hunter. Um, anybody seen the show on, on cable, The Curse of Oak Island? They drag you on and on and on and on. It's kind of like finding Bigfoot. How many seasons can you look for Bigfoot? Come on, he's not there. But he's there somewhere. But the treasure, and it wants you, it just keeps you moving forward. We get excited about a lot of stuff. But do we get excited about what God is doing? Do we get excited about what He's done in our own lives? He says, let the whole earth shout as to the King, triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Who's He talking to here? Who's the word serve directed to? English scholars, teachers, understood you, the reader. Serve the Lord. You see, serving God is not just for those who are called. Serving God is not just for those who are talented or skilled in a specific area. Serving God is for all of us who have experienced the victory of walking through this world with Christ by our side. So he says, serve the Lord with gladness and come before him with joyful songs. And then he says, acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. The whole idea behind he made us. And if we're not careful, it's easier some days to worship the creation more than the creator. And we have to make sure that we're not distracted by things that really don't matter in this life, right? Make sure that we're not distracted by the, the things that really don't count for eternity, and really, when it's all said and done, only two things will stand the test of time. What is it? Souls of men and the Word of God. That's it. Everything else, God's Word says, it will be tried by fire and it will be burned up. So what is it that we truly invest our time and our energy and our focus in? So he says, serve the Lord, acknowledge the Lord that He is God. He has made us. We're not His. I want you to just keep your finger there in Psalm 99 just for a moment. There's going to be several verses that will be on the screen. But the first one in Psalm chapter 119 and verse 73. Psalm 119, 73, I love this. It says, Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding so that I can learn your commands. Now think about this just for a moment. He says, If you have the wisdom to form me and to make me, Help me understand all things that you, because you're, you're infinitely wise. You're omniscient. You know all things. God, you've made everything. Help me to understand this. So there's an acknowledgement that he is not only made by God, but because he is made by God, he says, I know that you know all things. Help me understand your commandments. 
And then he goes on in Psalm 139, verse 14, another very familiar passage. I'm sure you all know this. But verse 14 says, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. And that has never ceases to amaze me when you think of the very fact, I've got lots of friends in Indiana that work at Zimmer and other places that make prosthetics. But with the world's best prosthetics, imitation hearts, valves, all these things that man can make, they're not as good as the original. Find out someone who needs a knee replacement. And they say, well, how old are you? If you're not at least 55, we're not going to do it most of the time because they said it only has a 10 to 15 year limit. We want to make sure that you can get to the end without having to do it a second time. Why? Because it's not as good as the original. Think about this. He says, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Man's best attempts at replacing what God has made has been futile. Though they strive, though they try, and we're grateful for those advances in medical technology. But in Genesis 1.26, he says, I formed you out of the dust of the ground. Genesis 2.7, he goes, I breathed into your nostrils a breath of life. He says, what? The bottom line is, I made you. And that goes into the face of the culture that we live in, where we think we have the idea that we own ourselves. No, we don't as God's children. God owns us. We are His. We belong to Him. And we need to be at His beck and call for whatever He chooses to do or not do in our lives. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, I'm sorry, 1 verses 16 and 17 says, For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and, what's the next words? For Him. Let me read that again. All things have been created through Him and for Him. We are His. And verse 17 says, He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. What's he saying here? We belong to Him. He makes everything work. And if we go through life thinking that we can do whatever we want because we have the choice and we belong to ourselves and blah, 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 we're missing the point of what God has done in and through creation. We belong to Him. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, is one of my favorite verses in all the Scripture. I came across this, across this verse several years ago. I, I just love this verse. Verse 11 says, O Lord our God, You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because You have created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. In other words, if God didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't have happened. If God didn't want you into existence, you wouldn't be in existence. He says, I created all things for my own will, for my own purposes. And when we start thinking about that, that's a great responsibility. If God says, I created you, and I made you for my purposes, then that begs the question, what are his purposes? Well, one of them is just to give him thanks for all that he's done. And we forget that sometimes, that God wants us to give him praise. That God wants us to boast in him. God wants us to rejoice in him. In Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, one more verse I want to look at. And I think this kind of is the capstone of it all. It says, For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. What's he saying here? Not only have I created all things for my own will, for my own purpose, all these things are created so that I might be glorified through them. So that begs another question. Am I, as God's creation, bringing glory back to Him through my life? That opens up a big old can of worms. Everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I look at, every thought that I have, every action I take, does it bring glory to God? As his creation, am I living my life in such a way that he would be glorified? That's a huge question. Well, I glorify him in this area and maybe in this area, but what about this area and this area over here? I mean, God has this piece of the pie and that piece of the pie and maybe even a portion of this piece of the pie, but this piece is mine. I wonder if God would just simply be saying, you know, that's fair enough. Yeah, you know, you give me most of your life. That's good. Is that how it works? Or does God have right to all of it? I think we know the answer. And that's why he says in verse 3, Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. And that's why he's able to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, a very familiar passage. It says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And remember this, the day you, you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, on that day... The Holy Spirit took residence inside you. He says, whom you have from God. What's the next phrase? You are not, what is it? Your own. For you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Once again, the purpose is to bring glory back to God. And then he says, not only we are his, people but the sheep of his pasture i'm amazed at how many times god's word really refers to his people as sheep in psalm chapter 79 and verse 13 just back a couple pages uh, he says then we your people the sheep of your pasture will thank you forever and will declare your praise to generation after generation not Psalm 95 and verse 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. He cares for us. Uh, we could go back Psalm 23, 1. We'll take, take, not take the time. But I do want you to take the time to turn over to John chapter 10 just for a moment, if you would. John chapter 10. I am going to read several verses here to help us understand the concept of the relationship between shepherd and sheep. I love this passage. He says, Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. Now, in our mind's eye, we can probably get a picture of what, we're, of what we think a sheep pasture might look like. But lest we get the long, wrong picture, let me just explain to you just for a moment. A sheep pasture in biblical days is nothing like what we would imagine it today. Not, nothing at all like it. 
you know, today we have nice, you know, nice, you know, fence rows and, and nice, you know, you know, fencing or wired fencing. And, and we move from one area to graze to another area to graze. It was not that way in biblical days. In fact, it was a stone wall. Sometimes a stone wall would be two or three foot tall. Remember, these are sheep. They're not jumping hurdles. You know, it could be just a couple feet tall to anywhere about four or five foot tall. Sometimes it wasn't just to keep the sheep in. It was to keep other predators out. But most of the time, they were two to three foot tall. They were stone walls. They might be anywhere from a stone width wide to, to a couple feet wide based on how many stones that they could gather to do it. But they'd make these stone walls. Sometimes they had mud mortar. Sometimes it didn't. But there is a stone wall that went around a perimeter of a given piece of landscape or property. And that landscape, it would go sometimes along a, along a fence row or a tree row or wherever it was. But whatever they designed, there would be one spot where there was not stone. It was the opening where the sheep would come inside the row of stones, the fence row of stones, and where they would leave. One opening. They had to come in and out through that one spot. There weren't multiple openings. There were one opening where the sheep would come in and out. So, that one opening is where the shepherd would sit at night. He would sit in that opening. As long as he was in the opening, nothing would come in and nothing would go out. He was the shepherd. So put that in your mind's eye as we read through this once again. It says, Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, and the gate is the opening, not necessarily a physical, literal gate, but an opening, Climbs in, but climbs in some other way as a thief and a robber. So if he didn't come in through that gate, he's not supposed to be in there. Period. So the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. Keep that in your mind. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside... He goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. And they will never follow a stranger. Instead, they'll run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Now, once again, put this into the concept of what we're reading about. God's word says that we as his people are his... What is it? Sheep. And if we as his sheep are to listen to one voice... Whose voice are we as his sheep to listen to? God's. Think about that. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of voices in this world. There's the voice of your financial planner. There's the voice of your boss. There's the voice of your coworker. There's the voice of your relatives. There's the voice of your children. There's the voice of you. Pick pick a voice. They're all they're all they're all shooting something at you, right? Right. Everybody's got got an opinion. He says he listens to the voice of his leader, of his shepherd. Strangers they'll not follow. They don't want to listen to that voice. In verse 6, Jesus gave them his, this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus said again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. So now he not only paints the picture that there is one gate, there's one opening in the, inside the pasture that the shepherd sits in. If he doesn't come in and out of that thing, he's, he's not supposed to be there. And now he says, wait a minute, you're not getting it. Folks, I'm that shepherd. 
If you want a relationship with me, you have to come to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and out and go find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them. And runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. You see, there are those who just want to make a buck. Yeah, oh, I, can, I can be a shepherd for a while, but when trouble comes, where are they? When it really gets down into the nitty gritty, where are they? They've run. And Jesus says, I'm here. It says, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from the sheep, sheep pen. I must bring them also, bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And then he goes on to say, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I receive this command from my Father. You go back here to our text in Psalm 100. He says, he made us and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And then he says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. When we realize truly that Jesus Christ is our shepherd, and that we're to have that relationship where we know his voice and he knows our voice. Let me ask this question. Do you know his voice? Can you hear it? As his sheep, are you listening to it? How does God speak to us? Right here. This is how he speaks to us. How do we talk to him? Right here. We pray. And only then, when there's two-way communication, both giving and receiving information, can a relationship, a strong relationship, be built. So he says, enter his gates. We're going to him through him. His gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And then he goes on to say, give thanks to him and bless his name. There's two phrases in verse 4 that really stand out that have significance to me. The first one says, give thanks. And it's the idea of a giving thanks from the heart. How many of you have ever given a gift to somebody and you felt like it was just unappreciated? Go ahead, raise your hand. You ever done that? Maybe it's something that you worked for, something you sacrificed for, something that you paid a lot for. And as you gave it, you kind of have this expectation. It's like, wow, this is great. This is exciting. This is awesome. They, oh, thanks. And they really just don't care about it that much. I think if you're a parent, you probably had that happen one time or, you know, in your, in your life. You know, it's like when they're little and they play more with the box than they do with the toy that came in the box. I mean, it, it happens. So he says, when he says give thanks, it's a heartfelt thankfulness. 
there's a contemplation involved. There's a meditation involved in thinking, what was sacrificed for me to receive this? What was given for me to appreciate this? And when we think of the very fact that Jesus Christ left the splendor of heaven, came down to earth to dwell as a man, to experience the things that we experience, yet without sin, and to go to the cross and sacrifice his own life and shed his blood. What kind of emotion should that stir within us? A desire to truly give thanks. It says, give thanks to him. And then it says, to bless his name. The idea behind blessing in this particular verse is the idea of saluting. Honoring, respecting, saluting our king, our leader, our God. To salute him. When's the last time we just stopped and contemplated this? I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little bit of the pressure of everything that's going on. When I was younger, I used to think, that ah, it's no big deal. Bring it on. Pressure who? What's pressure? Anybody else feel as you get a little bit older, the pressure gets to you a little bit? Yeah. Do we stop? Give thanks. Consider what was done so that I could receive Jesus. He gave his life. And then he says in verse 5, For the Lord is good. And there's another word picture here. It's the idea of that temple incense giving off a sweet aroma. It's just good. Smells good. In today's vernacular, it might be you walk into the house and there's a fresh loaf of bread on the stove. Just pulled out of the oven and it smells so good. I think in the, in the Hebrew, it's probably Miss Patty's peach pie with the butter smell of the crust. It's like, mmm. What's that sweet-smelling savor? It says, the Lord is good. And his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Literally meaning generation after generation after generation. His faithful love endures forever. He's faithful. One last question. How many of you thought you had a friend who turned out to be unfaithful. That's not God. He's faithful. He'll never let you down. Bottom line is, he's always there. I'm thankful for that. What I'd like for us to do just for a moment, I want us all to stand. Matt, if you'd put Psalm 100 up there, let's just close with that as a responsive reading this morning. I'm going to read verse 1, you'll read verse 2, I'll read verse 3, you'll read verse 4, and verse 5 we all read together. So let us begin. I think it's up there, is it? So, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. 
give thanks to Him and bless His name. Then all of us together. For the Lord is good and His faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. As we think about that this morning, are we truly giving God the thankfulness? Or is our heart truly a heart of thankfulness? Are we giving Him the glory for all that He's done? Last week we celebrated Thanksgiving. This past week, a few days ago. And I don't know who did it, but somebody put it on Facebook. The day after we gave thanks for all the things that we had, people are getting trampled in the stores for Black Friday to get more things. Man, are we ever satisfied? Is there ever just truly a time where we just, no, nah, I'm good, I have enough? <laughs> or is it always that we need more? Or maybe is it that we need more of the right things? More time with God. More obedience to Him. More submission to what He's wanting to do in and through us. And to be thankful for what He's done. I don't know about you, but that's a convicting challenge. To have the right attitude and the right spirit concerning the things that God is doing and how we respond to them. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the very fact that you said that your faithful love will endure for all generations. And I ask God that you'd work in each and every one of our hearts, Lord, to draw us closer to you.